So on uh, January 13th, 1984, President Ronald Reagan designated January 22nd as the National Sanctity of Human Life Day. So it's typically celebrated on the third Sunday or whatever Sunday, maybe closer to the 22nd. And so I thought uh, it might be time for just a sermon towards that end. I, it, I do, we do mention it, not infrequently, but I thought a whole entire sermon. Then I was listening a few weeks ago to a podcast on Matthew chapter 2, which is our sermon text this morning. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, there we have the awful uh, reality of Herod, Herod the Great, slaughter of all of the uh, ba- baby boys, two years and younger, in uh, Bethlehem and the surrounding thing. And in the podcast, it talked about uh, it used to be a part of our regular Advent Christmas celebration, an additional feast day dece- uh, celebrated on December 28th in the West or December 29th in the East, um, remembering that slaughter. How many of you were aware of that? It's called the Feast of the Innocents, also Childer Mass, or the Innocence Day. Have, had any of you heard of that? I hadn't heard of that before. That was new to me. And so on the 28th, it was a special part of the Christmas celebration to remember this, because this is part of the Christmas story, isn't it? And, and we'd rather it not be. It's awful. Um, and so it was, a, it, it was celebrated as that because the early church determined that the first martyrs the first of those to die for Jesus were these children. And so they celebrate them as the first Christian martyrs. And so it was a long history. And it actually became established as a separate feast in the 5th century. And really all the way up until modern times, it was part of the Christmas celebration. Now, I also read, this is awful, but in England, Beginning in the Middle Ages until about the 17th century, children were whipped in bed in the morning of the 28th to remind them of the mournfulness of that day. I don't approve of that. I don't think we should recover that practice. That sounds pretty awful to me. And I, don't, I didn't go into detail on what whipping meant. I, I, I imagine it wasn't like a beating or just a, maybe something to teach them. It's not good, but Christians come up with some dumb ideas sometimes, and that's one of them. So, so you have that, Sanctity of Life Day, Matthew 2 is a normal part of the Christian celebration of Christmas, and then you've been seeing what's been going on. Canada, earlier this month, approved a bill, C4, quote, the Prime Minister, makes illegal to promote, advertise, benefit from, or subject someone to the hateful and harmful practice of helping anyone out of the LGBTQ lifestyle. Anyone who offers or promotes help of somebody converting a lifestyle can be fined and put in prison for up to two years. Anyone who actually influences or helps somebody out of the LGBTQ lifestyle can be fined and imprisoned up to five years. That's now the law of the land in Canada. And not only is it the law of the land in Canada, it was unanimously voted yes by every uh, legislator in the Canadian legislature, conservatives and liberals, every one of them. 
Now, that's also happening in the U.S. and Lafayette. I don't know if that's Indiana or Ohio. Indiana, their city council just passed a similar law that is specifically targeting a church that has a long history of counseling and helping those in the LGBTQ community uh, to be free from it. And not only Lafayette, there's others. And so with all of that, I, I, I thought the sermon, and what I wanted to do in this sermon, though, isn't just decry the immorality and wickedness of these things, although they are immoral and, and very wicked. Uh, but, but, and not just urge you to get involved in this fight, but to start here in the household of God and just ask us to consider what we think of children. How we relate to them. I want us to love them, delight in them. Have the faith to see that God made us male and female so that we can have them, raise them to love Christ. And so do we see children as a blessing and joy that we see in Scripture? That's the question. I'm going to read Matthew 2, 12 to 23. If you have your Bibles, Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. Maybe about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. <clears throat> so Matthew 2, 12 to 23. And then I just want to explain briefly all of chapter 2. To get the whole story. So the whole chapter of the Bible is dedicated to this story right after Christ's birth. So uh, again, Matthew 2, 12 to 23. And being warned, these are the wise men, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he had saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, now may the meditations of 
our hearts, my heart, may the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight and helpful to your people, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The main point of this text is verse 13. God the Father protecting the life of his son from a murderous ruler so that his son could die later for our sins. That's the main point here. We see in Revelation 12 this picture of the devil trying to destroy the seed of the woman. Harkening back to Genesis 3 that Eve was promised a child who would step on the serpent's head, destroy the serpent, but he himself would be bruised. And so from the very beginning, the kingdom of this world, the domain of darkness, the devil, and the offspring of Eve, the people of God, the city of God, there's always been a war trying to destroy the, the promised one. So anyways, the main point is that from a wicked ruler, the father had to protect his wife and child in order that he could die. His life had to be preserved until the time God had set. So Matthew 2 begins with these wise men coming from the east. Now when we have seen this before, how many wise men do we see? Three. There's not three. There's three gifts. Uh, These were likely very wealthy, maybe some kind of kings um, from another kingdom in the east. And they probably came with a very large contingent. They brought millions of dollars worth of gifts. And so, you know, they probably had soldiers and, and, and you know, cooks and, and so on. And so when they came, everybody saw them come in Jerusalem. Everybody saw them, including Herod. And it says, after they received the news that a king of the Jews had been born, it says Herod in verse 3 was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Let's, let's talk about Herod. Herod isn't a first name, it's a title, like Pharaoh, uh, something of a political dynasty. This is the first of three Herods named in the Bible. We have Herod the Great, and then you have Herod mentioned when John the Baptist's head is taken off. That's this Herod's son. And then you have another Herod in the book of Acts, you remember, who boasted that he was like a god, and then he was eaten by worms. <laughs> uh, so little boys and girls, the Bible is full of good stories. But this, this Herod was part Jewish, part Edomite. And he wasn't the rightful king of the Jews. He attained the throne by political maneuvering, by giving favors to uh, Caesar. In fact, when he was given this kingship over Judea, he sacrificed to the god Jupiter in Rome. He was just a political animal. He was also a paranoid, crazy man. He murdered his father-in-law, but he had ten of them because he had ten different wives. He murdered two of those two, murdered three of his sons all because he thought that they were conspiring against him. So when he heard that a 
child was born king of the Jews. That's what did it, because he knew he wasn't the rightful king. And so this paranoid, murderous, political animal tries to go about this in a political way. All right, good. There's a king born. Let's worship him. You guys go and come and tell me where he is. Of course, the wise men are warned not to go back to him. They depart another way. When he figures it out, after the Lord had come, sent an angel to Joseph and Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus fled to Egypt. Herod, when he saw that he was tricked, became furious and sent soldiers to the little village of Bethlehem to destroy all the baby boys two years old and under. And it's noted, and in all that region. So Herod wasn't taking any chances. Jesus was likely not two years old now. He was maybe months old. We don't know, but he probably wasn't two yet. But he just wanted to be sure. And so how many children were killed here? We don't know. It it wasn't hundreds. It was tens. I've read estimates between 10 and 50. It's, It's awful though, isn't it? So this is one of the things that when you read this text of the Bible, you want to read it real quickly because you do not want to think what it was like to have soldiers come into your town and knock in your doors and take your 18-month-old son and kill him. But that's what happened here. As a part of the birth of our Savior. And so... We read then that there was great mourning, or as other translations say, loud wailing. It's not a stretch for those of you who are parents to sympathize with this. Those of you who love children, it's not hard to put yourself in their place. They refused to be comforted because their boys were no more. Isn't that a sobering statement there? Because they are no more. And this is the rescue of our Savior. Joseph is a good man who protects his wife and child and flees to Egypt. And of course, what we're seeing here is a second Moses, a far greater Moses. And it's ironic that Jesus has to flee from the land promised to the Israelites, the land that was supposed to be fruitful in life. He has to flee to the place that killed the Israelite baby boys in order to be saved from that. And so he comes out of Egypt in fulfillment of prophecy. So we see right away in this text the awful circumstances that teach us why Jesus had to come. Every Christmas season we talk about light. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. What kind of darkness? This kind of darkness. 
We're the kind of people who have fashioned a world where a woman has to have a baby and weeks or months later has to flee to another country because somebody wants to kill him. That's the kind of world we've made. That's the kind of people we are. Egypt is the place that kills babies. Egypt is the place that sacrifices babies to their gods. Egypt is the kind of place where its rulers are so paranoid that when other nationalities are having more babies than their people, they kill the babies. That's where he has to go. That's the kind of world he was born into. That's sobering. And what we're meant to do when we read this text is celebrate the protection of God of his Savior, but see all the more that though we aren't Egyptians, we're Egyptians. If you know what I mean. And we have the trite saying, you can take a boy off the farm, but you can't take the farm out of the boy or however it goes. We're, we're this kind of darkness. We're Herods. We may not murder children, but we have hatred. We have unjust anger. We have selfish outbursts at those created in God's image. We don't get what we want. And so we fight, quarrel, manipulate, because somebody's in the way of what we want, even if it's little. This has been the most sobering part for me of reading this text. That's me. Consistently. Regularly. I have way more in common with Herod than I do with Joseph. Don't you? This is why Christ had to come to die. Because this is the kind of world that we've made. We talk, debate about the relationship between God's sovereignty and human freedom. This is what humans make in our freedom. Right? Why? Because we love ourselves. Christ had to be banished from his homeland so that we would never have to be banished from God's presence. Jesus from birth was acquainted with trouble, with great sorrow, so that by his sorrows, by his death, we may live. His hour was not yet, wrote one commentator, so God preserved him so that he might live a bit longer in order to die for us in our place. But the only way that this gospel will ever be precious is if we refuse to see ourselves as good little boys and girls, but as this kind of dark. This is the gospel. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 something, 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. You say, what kind of sins? There's a reason that 
the reality of Herod's slaughter of the innocents comes right after that statement. What kind of sins? What are you talking about? This kind of sins. Where soldiers listen to the order of their commanding officer to go kill two-year-old baby boys. Where policemen and women listen to their mayors and sergeants to go and escort women into the abortuary to kill their babies. And then say, I was just following orders. That's the kind of world, that's why Jesus had to come to die. And so, thank God for the righteous life of Jesus, which becomes our record. Thank God that his blood washes away all of our petty hatreds and irritability and Herod-like selfishness in our hearts. But you will never know the joy of that until you see the reality of this world and yourself. This is one of the problems with the church today is we talk about grace all the time, but we have no idea what it is. We talk about the kindness of God and the goodness of God and the love of God, but it's so trite and it's so light because we have no connection anymore to the doctrine of how depraved we are. How depraved are we? How depraved are you? What are you capable of? Well, Matthew chapter 2 is as clear as it gets. How many of you as parents, when you had an infant, and it's night after night of staying up, and they're screaming and wailing, what went through your head? I know it went through my mind. And it was like Herod. And I was shocked that I could ever think something like that about my child. And so while we... Hopefully, we'll have the faith to look at ourselves, that our hearts are deceitful of all and desperately wicked. You don't believe that at all, do you? You just do not believe that. God, I wish I could get us to believe that. That Christ came to die for us. And his righteousness is now our record. We are acceptable to God because of Christ. Even though we have those kind of thoughts about our own flesh and blood children. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So who are these children? Because I, <laughs> I do want us to just love children. That's kind of the goal of this sermon. And so now that you've got a bloody nose, who are these kids? Well, it's called the slaughter of the innocents. Now, some of you are theologically snobbery, snobbish, and you say, nobody's innocent. Well, you know what it means, right? Children are innocent. They have a certain innocence. Of course, they're fallen in Adam. Of course, they're... You know, de depraved, but there, there's an innocence, a beauty, a, a purity of children. They are the creation of God. Pastor Jeff referenced it. I referenced it in my prayer, Psalm 139. 
the psalmist is thinking on God and, and, and God's thoughts. He's thinking on all that God sees. And, and, then he, and then he turns to man and he's thinking of God's thoughts of us and, and God's nearness to us, that there's nowhere we can go from him. And then it makes him turn to God's creation of us and what it was like. And he wonders at how God creates this human being in his image in a mother's womb. And he pictures knitting. He pictures this intimate work, craftsmanship of God, of all of the human complexity there inside that little workshop of a mother's womb. And he just declares, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. He doesn't have the words to sing the glories of the infinite, transcendent, all-knowing God working mysteriously in the womb of a woman, knitting together, forming this human being in his image. It's really one of the most spectacular sections in Scripture to see the glories of mankind, of the, of the creation of man, created in his image, body and soul. We exist forever. There is a wonder, particularly of children. We all get it. One of the great delights of doing a regular children's message, no offense, it isn't what Pastor Jeff says. It's hearing what the kids respond with. Why is that so good? I was listening to the podcast with a secular humanist. I, I don't want to name him because I don't want you to listen to him. But he, got to, he was interviewing two evolutionary biologists who are atheists. They describe themselves as atheist agnostics. I don't know what that means. And, and these Two evolutionary biologists are married, and he asked them at the very end of the podcast, do you guys have kids? And they have two kids. And then they began to describe the wonder of having children, the joy of it, and why. He named a few reasons. One is it just, is it teaches you just to, to be happy. Kids are happy, naturally. It's fun. And you get to play with children when you're an adult. You stop playing. I don't know what age we stop playing, but we stop playing. And then when you have kids, you learn to play again. That's what these three were talking about. And then he says, you know, as you get older, you become dull to the things that you see, which are really spectacular. You see the world again. You get wonder and, and awe and joy again of things that you've kind of just become bored with. You get to see things through a child's eyes again. And, and then he said, there is just this simplicity with children, this this you never know what's going to come next kind of thing with children. And they're just gushing about it. And it hit me. I have never heard a pastor, a Christian author, talk with the same delight of children that these humanistic, secular, atheistic, evolutionary biologists did. And isn't that shocking? Children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. In our school, I teach Bible, and we just got to the book of Exodus. And, you know, there in chapter 1, when the Israelites are procreating like rabbits, it's noted that that's God's blessing on them. And in the contrast is God's hand for blessing is on Israel, but not on Egypt. And 
the blessing is children. The gift is children. That Israel was noted to be God's people by that one thing, that they were being given lots of children. And then you remember the story of the midwives who were ordered by Pharaoh to kill the baby boys and they refused and lied about it. And what was their gift, their reward from the Lord for their courage and defending life? you remember? What was it? They were given children. They were given children. And so the Bible everywhere loves children. Now we do want to be somewhat careful. We want to love children. We want to delight in children. But we, we don't want to idolize children. They, they do need to be brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You can so focus on children that children become the everything in your home and you actually end up hurting them where they always get their way and you do whatever they want and they're running your lives. Children are not good enough or wise enough to be given that kind of responsibility. You know, your child until they're seven or eight is going to live in a dictatorship. You're going to tell them what to do and when to do it in almost everything. You're rarely going to ask your child what they want. <laughs> because they're not good enough yet to be asked that question. They've got to earn that. See, so we do have to be careful. But mainly, we just want to enjoy them. We want to delight in them. We want to rejoice in them. But what we're seeing here in Matthew 2 is nothing new in the world. Our murder of unborn children is nothing new. The Romans had a regular practice of an unwanted child. They, they did try abortion. They did come up with chemicals that a woman ingests to try to kill their unborn. They did try surgical. They didn't have the technology that we have. And so what they typically did is if they had a baby that was unwanted, they gave it to a servant to go leave on a hillside. and Then they could say, we didn't kill them. You know what Christians did? They went and picked those babies up and raised them as their own and ended the practice. Constantine forbade it under penalty of death. Christians ended it. And then, of course, you have all of the pagan sacrificing of children. We see it in the Old Testament. Burning children alive to their false gods. Even God's people did this. And then, of course, you have military slaughter. We see it noted again and again in history and even in Scripture. Pregnant women, babies ripped from their wombs and killed. So this is nothing new. In our day, it's just abortion. It's not millions of children. It's billions of children in our world. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Let me do it this way. When you read Matthew chapter 2, it, 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 it's the, the reaction to it's visceral, isn't it? It's really awful what we read here. 
of what he did. When's the last time you had that same reaction to abortion? I was looking at this week, and one pastor said that we aren't as troubled by the murder of the unborn as we are at Herod's slaughter, because in our day, as in past, it isn't really about the children, but just about us having what we want. We permit abortion because it's really just about choice. These mothers in Matthew 2 didn't have choice. These parents didn't have a choice. Right? And so this, is, this makes you angry. Because it was against the parents' will. It was against the mother's will. The babies were ripped from her hands. But when it's ripped from her womb, it was her choice. And so it doesn't make us as angry. Well, it's really not about the killing of babies as much as the violation of our freedom and our choice. Because that's what we're all about as a nation, aren't we? My freedom to choose. As long as that's not violated, we're okay. That's why we have laws like if a pregnant mother is killed by a drunk driver, there's two charges of murder. But if that same mother chose to go to the abortion clinic and have her baby murdered, it's okay. Why? Because it isn't about the children. It's just about choice. We just love choice. We just love the freedom to make whatever choice we want. Is that not convicting to you, to us? It's just what we want. So we do have to say very clearly, abortion is murder, which means that a woman who contributes to the murder of her unborn child is a murderer and should be, under our laws, punished as so. And did you know that this is the very thing that the pro-life movement absolutely refuses to say. Donald Trump was interviewed by Chris Matthews in 2016. Chris Matthews asked him, I've never understood the pro-life position because I understand the principle of human life, but what crime is it? Donald Trump said it's a human life. Matthews asked, should women be punished for an abortion? This is not something you can dodge, Matthews said. If You say abortion is a crime and abortion is murder. You have to deal with it under the law. Should abortion be punished? Trump's response, yes, there should be. Matthews, do you believe in a punishment for abortion, yes or no? Trump, the answer is there has to be some form of punishment. Matthews, for the woman. Trump, yes, there has to be some form. Immediately after, President Gene Mancini head of the pro-life march, head of the pro-life American said this, being pro-life means wanting what is best for the mother and the baby. Women who choose abortion do so in desperation and deeply regret such a decision. No pro-lifer would ever want to punish a woman who's chosen abortion. 
She went on further to say unborn children and their mothers are victims in an abortion. Typically, when we talk about abortion in a mother, we say a mother has experienced an abortion. You heard that language? It's rampant throughout the pro-life movement. Why? Why will we not call it what it is? Because it isn't about the kids. It's about choice. It's about us doing what we want to do. because we have a cognitive dissonance in some way that a woman is always a victim. Of course there are victims, and of course there are some awful circumstances. But children from conception are created in the image of God by God himself, and to end that life is murder. And it ought to be dealt with as so, as such. And so men and women, doctors and nurses, all who contribute to the destruction of an unborn child, are guilty of the unjust ending of a human life created in the image of God, and so are guilty of murder. And it should be dealt with as such on our earth. And in the Bible, the punishment for first-degree premeditated murder is the death penalty. Now, not all abortions would be first-degree. There are other mitigating circumstances. But it is still the ending of a human life. Why do Christians refuse to talk about this? Why will we not deal with this as it is? Why, if the majority of Americans would call themselves Christians, why is this not ended in our country? I think because we just don't care about it like we say we do. I think it's because it's really just about freedom to choose. Because we don't love children. We don't enjoy them. We don't delight in them as the Father in heaven who gives them. Now, in this sermon, it's difficult because there are some of you who would love to have children and can't. There are some of you who have gone through the sorrow the incredible sorrow of the loss of a child, the miscarriage or stillbirth or in their young life. Or some of you are giving a lot of time and energy and of yourself fostering and adopting. And so may God give you grace as you deal with this sorrow. Forty... 45% of, only 45% of weekly churchgoers believe that it's important for a child to be raised by a mother and a father together. 
when we speak of the gift of marriage and children, we have to continually go back to the reality that the reason that God, the, the first reason given that God made us man and woman is so that we could have children. That God made us male and female, brought us together in lifelong union for the express purpose of having and raising children to love the Lord Jesus Christ. That children are a blessing. They are a gift. They are a heritage. That these women in Bethlehem wept with loud screams because they loved their babies. Because they saw their babies, their baby boys as a gift from God. As a blessing. As what they're for. Now, marriage and being male and female is for more than that. It is for intimacy and compassion. We see in 1 Corinthians 7, it is for protection from sexual morality. But it's chiefly for procreation. I mean, God even gave us the parts. God's design is a delight. It's incredible. Brothers... To be a father, it is one of the greatest privileges you'll ever experience in your life, to be a father. It is, next to being a husband and a Christian, your highest calling to give of yourself for your children, to raise them, to protect them, to help them grow, to give of yourself for them. To love them, to play with them, to wrestle them, to tussle the hair, to cuddle with them on their couch, to spank them and then hug them, to provide for them. To be a father is a good, good, good thing. Women, to be a mother, likewise, is a very, very high and precious calling. It's a wonder, it's a joy. I, I, I am really now out of my depth, but I can't imagine what it's like to have a human being being formed together in your womb. To carry that child and to birth him or her and to nurse him or her. What a, what a gift. What a glory to give yourself, to give of your blood, to give of your body for this gift of God given to you. Don't ever, ever, ever let anybody tell you as a father or as a mother that that is second to anything else. It is not. And I am not at all dismissing singles or those that God has given other callings to, but 95, 8% of you will get married. And the reason you are getting married is to have children. Isn't that crazy that that's, that's shocking to us today? <laughs> and so love being fathers, love being mothers, love children, love bringing children to this world, love all of the craziness and fun and play and 
wonder of children. Enjoy them, delight in them. You're not wasting your time being with them. There's nothing hardly more important than when you get home to be with your children and delight in them. The dishes will get done. The car will get fixed. Enjoy your kids. Love them. Right? I think really that's the solution. Let's pray. Father, would you help us now? These things that go on in our world are heavy. And yet, when the concentration camps were right down the road from these cities and the citizens went on acting like nothing was going on, how much more we keep us from burying our heads in the sand, keep us from acting like there aren't going to be hundreds of babies killed in the next couple of days. But God, help us to delight and love children, to see them as a gift, as a reward, as a fruit, as a joy, as a privilege, as a calling. So help us to love our children. Help us as fathers and mothers to grow and hate our sin of just being so easily irritated and, and selfish with our time. Help us to delight in our children. Help us to be wise in raising them, to be attentive to your word in it. God, please help us to receive the help of others in our church as we do it. Give us faith for this hard work. God, bless marriages with much fruitfulness. God, help those who are trying to conceive and can't to do it, to conceive. God, help those who are wondering if three is enough or four is enough to maybe consider how, how many more can we have? God, provide for us in this. Provide what we need. Use it to sanctify us more and more. Help us to welcome children as your son did. And so, God, please work in us a, a growing delight in, in children. And may our children, oh God, follow you. May they know you. Yes, it's all in Jesus' name. Amen.